Part 2, Chapter 11 of The Merry-Go-Round. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Baum. Part 2, Chapter 11. Mrs. Barlow Bassett who cultivated the fashion with the assiduity of a woman not too well assured of her position in society, was preparing to spend August in Hamburg when a sudden illness prostrated her, and it was found that an immediate operation was needful. She went into a private hospital with the presentiment that she would never recover, and her chief sorrow was that she must leave Reggie, so ill-prepared for the mundane struggle to go his way alone just when a mother's loving care was most needed for his guidance. Her heart ached to keep him continually by her side, but she had trained herself to sacrifice every amiable tenderness, and when he told her of an arrangement to read in the country with his tutor, would not hear of its being disturbed. Her possible demise made it all the more necessary that he should be standing on his own feet as a professional man, and resolutely she crushed not only her natural inclinations, but also all evidence of anxiety for her own condition. She made light of the approaching ordeal, so that his attention would be in no way diverted from his work. Reggie promised to write every day, and went so far a trait which touched her deeply, as to insist on remaining in London till after her operation. He would not be able to see her, but at least could inquire how she had borne it. Mrs. Barlow Bassett drove to Wimpole Street with her son and bade him a very tender farewell. At the end, just before he left, her courage partly failed, and she could not prevent a cry of distress. And if something happens, Reggie, and I don't recover, you will be a good boy, won't you? You will be honest and straightforward and loyal? What do you think? answered Reggie. She folded him in her arms, and with a firmness not unbecoming her appearance, fashioned somewhat in the grand style, let him go with dry eyes and with smiling lips. But Mrs. Bassett had exaggerated a little the perils of her condition. She bore the operation admirably, and after the first two days proceeded without interruption to complete recovery. Reggie wrote with considerable regularity from Brighton, where it appeared the tutor had established himself for the summer, and gave his mother accounts of the work he did. He went into considerable detail and indeed seemed so industrious that Mrs. Bassett was reminded to remonstrate his tutor. After all, it was holiday time, and scarcely fair that Reggie's goodwill should be thus taken advantage of. Towards the end of the month, she was well enough to move back to her own house, and the morning after her return came downstairs in a very contented frame of mind, rejoicing in her new health and in the splendid summer weather. Carelessly she opened her morning post, and as usual ran her eye down the announcements of birth, death, and marriage. Suddenly it caught her own name, and she read the following intelligence. 
Barlow Bassett, Higgins, on the 30th, Ultimo, at St. George's, Hanover Square, West, Reginald, only son of the late Frederick Barlow Bassett, to Annie, Loria Galbraith, second daughter of Jonathan Higgins of Wimbledon. For a moment, Mrs. Bassett did not understand, and she read the paragraph twice, hopelessly mystified, before she realized that it announced to the world in general the marriage of her son. The date of the occurrence was the day after her operation, and on that very morning Reggie had called at Wimpole Street to inquire after her. The butler was still in the room, and helplessly Mrs. Bassett handed him the paper. "'Do you know what this means?' she asked. "'No, madam.' Her first thought was that it must be a practical joke, and then what was the meaning of that second name in parenthesis, Loria Galbraith? She rang for the servant and told him at once to send a wire, which she directed to Reggie at Brighton, asking for an explanation of the extraordinary announcement. After breakfast, she telegraphed to her solicitor and to the tutor's London address. The tutor's reply came first, to the effect that he had not seen Reggie since July, and in answer to her second question, he added that himself had been in London all summer. At length, Mrs. Bassett began to understand that something awful had happened. She went into Reggie's room, and coming upon a locked drawer, had it broken open. She found in it a writing-case, and with horror and indignation, turned out a motley collection of bills, pawn-tickets, and letters. She examined them all carefully, and first discovered that accounts for which she had given money were unpaid, and that others, enormous to her economical view, existed of which she knew nothing. Then from the pawn-tickets she learned that Reggie had pledged his father's watch, all his own trinkets, a dressing-case she had given him, and numberless other things. For an instant she hesitated at the letters, but only for an instant. It seemed her right now to know the worst, and little by little it dawned upon her that hitherto she had lived in a strange fool's paradise. First there came epistles from Duns, polite, supplicatory, menacing, then a couple of writs, smacking to her inexperienced eye of prison bars and unimagined penalties, letters from women in various writings, most of them ill-spelt, and the chief stationery betrayed the sender's rank. With frowning brow she read them, horrified and aghast. Some were full of love, others of anger, but all pointed distinctly to Reggie's polygamous tendency. At length came a bundle whereof the paper was quite different, thick, expensive, scented, and though not at once recognizing the hand when she opened the first, Mrs. Bassett cried out. On the left side, at the top, in little letters of gold, surrounded by a scroll, was the name Grace. And though there was no address, she knew that they were from Mrs. Castillon. She read them all, and her dismay turned to abject shame and anger. It appeared that this woman had given Reggie checks and banknotes. One letter said, I hope you can change the check. Another, so sorry you're hard up. 
Here's a fiver to go on with. A third, what a pig dog your mother is to be so mean. What on earth does she spend her money on? At first they were burning with passion, but soon began to complain of unkindness or cruelty, and one letter after another was filled with bitter reproaches. Mrs. Bassett took the whole contents of the writing-case and locked them in her own cabinet, then hurried to Reggie's tutor. Here she discovered that what she already suspected was true. She went home again and called the upper servants. It humiliated her enormously that she must catechize them on the conduct of her son, but now she had no scruples. At first they would say nothing, but by dint of promise and threat she extracted from them the full story how Reggie had lived during the last two years. At length, as a final blow, came an epistle from Reggie himself. 371 Boxhall Bridge Road My dear Mater, You will have seen in this morning's post that I was married at the end of last month to Miss Higgins, professionally known as Loria Galbraith, and we are now staying at the above address. I am sure you will like Loria, who is the best woman in the world and has saved me from going to the dogs. You might let us have a line to say when we can come and see you. Loria is most anxious to make your acquaintance. I should tell you that I have decided to chuck the bar, and I am going on the stage. Loria and I have got an engagement for the autumn tour of the Knave of Hearts, and we have come up to town for rehearsals. I am sure this will meet with your approval, because law is a rotten profession, awfully overcrowded, and as Loria says, on the stage there is always room for talent. I know I shall get on, and Loria and I hope in a few years to run our own company. I am working very hard, for although I am only walking on in this drama, I wouldn't have accepted the offer, only Loria has a ripping part, and, of course, as I hadn't been on the stage before, I had to take what I could get. I am learning Hamlet. Loria and I think of giving some recitations of that and Romeo and Juliet in town next spring. Your affectionate son, Reggie. P.S. You needn't worry about the money, because on stage I can earn far more than I ever should have done at the bar. An actor-manager simply makes thousands. Mrs. Bassett burst into tears, for she had never imagined that Reggie could be so callous, so inanely flippant. But rage succeeded all other emotions in her breast, and she wrote angrily, telling her son never again to show his face at her house, or the servants would throw him into the street, telling him that no farthing of her money should ever be his. Then silence seemed more dignified, and she determined merely to leave unanswered that impudent letter. But it was necessary to express her indignation to someone, and she sent an urgent note to Miss Lay, begging her at once to come. When the good lady, obedient to the summons, arrived, she found Mrs. Bassett in a very hysterical condition, walking up and down the room excitedly, and in the disorder of her majestic manner she reminded her somewhat of a middle-aged bacchante. "'Thank God you've come,' she cried, 
Reggie's married an actress, and I've disinherited him. I won't ever see him again, and for all I care, he may starve. Miss Lay made no movement of surprise, merely noting the fact that herself was a woman of provision. All she had expected was come about. I've been utterly deceived in him. He's not passed a single examination, and the servants have told me that he often came home at night tipsy. He's lied to me systematically. He's deceived me in every possible way, and all the time I flattered myself. He was a good, honest boy. He's been leading the life of a rip and a libertine. Her words were interrupted by a fit of crying while Miss Lay watched her reflectively. Presently, Mrs. Bassett recovered herself. I confess the marriage surprises me, murmured Miss Lay. Your daughter-in-law must be a woman of character and tact, Emily, but all the rest has been known to your friends for the last year. Do you mean to say you knew he was a drunken sot and little better than a thief and a liar? Yes. Why didn't you tell me? I thought you'd find out quite soon enough, and really, Emily, you're such a fool, you would probably have only made things worse. Mrs. Bassett was too much crushed to resent this plain speech. But you don't know everything. I've found a lot of letters from women. It's they who've led him astray. And do you know whose are the worst? Mrs. Castle Young's. Did you know that, too? Did everyone know my shame, and that my boy was being ruined, and did no one warn me? But I'm going to pay her out. I shall send every one to her husband. It's she who's done the mischief. She took from a drawer the bundle of letters and excitedly gave them to Miss Lay. Is this all? she asked. Yes. Miss Lay had with her a black satin bag in which she kept her handkerchief and her purse, and swiftly opening it, she put the letters in. What are you doing? My dear, don't be a fool. You're not going to send these letters to anyone, and as soon as I get home, I mean to burn them. Reggie was a dissolute rip before ever he met Grace Castellan, and the only woman who ruined him is yourself. You were very angry when I told you once that the greatest misfortune which could befall a man was to have a really affectionate mother, but I assure you, except for your bad influence, Reggie would have been no worse a boy than any other. Mrs. Bassett turned livid. I think you must be mad, Mary. I've done all I could by example and precept to make him a gentleman. I've devoted myself to his education, and I've sacrificed myself to him absolutely from the day he was born. I can honestly say that I've been a good mother. Pardon me, answered Miss Lay coolly. You've been a very bad mother, a very selfish mother, and you've systematically sacrificed him to your own whims and fancies. How can you talk to me like that when I want sympathy and help? Haven't you any pity for me? None. All that has happened you've brought entirely on yourself. You made him a liar by compelling him to tell you his most private affairs. You drove him to deception by expecting from him an impossible purity. You warned him of temptation, 
so as to make it doubly attractive. You never let him have a free will or a natural instinct, but insisted on his acting and feeling like a middle-aged and rather ill-educated woman. You thwarted all his inclinations and forced upon him yours. Good heavens! You couldn't have been more selfish, cruel, and exacting if you detested the boy. Mrs. Bassett stared at her, overwhelmed. But I only asked common honesty and truthfulness. I only wanted to keep him from spot and stain, and I only expected the morality which religion and everything else enforces upon us. You starved his instincts, the natural desire of a boy for gaiety and amusement, the natural craving of youth for love. You applied to him the standards of a woman of fifty. A wise mother lets her son go his own way and shuts her eyes to youthful peccadilloes. But you made all those peccadilloes into deadly sins. After all, moralists talk a deal of nonsense about the frailty of mankind. When you come to close quarters with vice, it's not really so desperately wicked as all that. A man may be a very good fellow, though he does sit up late and occasionally drink more than is discreet, gamble a little, and philander with ladies of doubtful fame. All these things are part of human nature. When youth and hot blood are joined together, and for some of them foreign nations wiser than ourselves have made provision. I wish I'd never had a son, cried Mrs. Bassett. How much luckier you are than I. Miss Lay got up, and a curious expression came over her face. Oh, my dear, don't say that. I tell you that even though I know Reggie to be idle and selfish and dissolute, I would give all I have in the world if he were only mine. There's not a soul on this wide earth that cares for me, except Frank, because I amuse him, and I'm so dreadfully lonely. I'm growing old. Often I feel so old I wonder how I can continue to live, and I want someone so badly to whom it's not a matter of absolute indifference if I'm well or ill, dead or alive. Oh, my dear, thank God for your son. I can't, now I know he's wicked and vicious. But what is vice, and what is wickedness? Are you sure we know? I suppose I have been a virtuous woman. I've done nobody any harm. I've helped a good many. I've done the usual moral things that women do. And when anything was possible that I particularly wanted, I've withstood, because it was ingrained in me that nice things were naughty. But sometimes I think I've wasted my life, and I dare say I've should be a better woman if I hadn't been so virtuous. When I look back now, it's not the temptations I fell to that I regret, but the temptations I resisted. I'm an old woman, and I've never known love, and I'm childless and forsaken. Oh, Emily, if I had my time over again, I promise you I wouldn't be so virtuous. I would take all the good that life offered, without thinking too much of propriety. And above all things, I would have a child. Mary, what are you saying? Miss Lay shrugged her shoulders and was silent. Her voice was broken, and she could not trust herself to speak. 
but Mrs. Bassett's thoughts went back to the injury which Reggie had done her, and she gave Miss Lay his letter to read. There's not a word of regret in it. He seems to have no shame and no conscience. He was married on the very day of my operation, when I might have died any moment. He must be absolutely heartless. Do you know what I would do if I were you? asked Miss Lay, pleased to get away from her own emotions. I would go to him and ask forgiveness for all the harm you've done him. I? Mary, you must be mad. What need have I for forgiveness? Think it over. I have an idea that presently it will occur to you that you never gave the boy a chance. I'm not sure whether you don't owe him a good deal of reparation. Anyhow, you can't undo the marriage, and it's just possible it may be the saving of him. You're not going to ask me to receive an actress as my daughter-in-law. Fiddle-dee-dee! She'll make your son a much better wife than a duchess. When Mrs. Barlow Bassett showed her friend Reggie's letter, Miss Lay carefully noted the address, and the next day, in the afternoon, proceeded to call upon the new married couple. They lived in a somewhat shabby lodging house in the Vauxhall Bridge Road, that long, sordid street, and Miss Lay was shown into an attic which served as sitting-room. It was barely fitted with tawdry furniture, much the worse for wear, but to give a home-like air, photographs were pinned to the wall, each with a sprawling flourish for a signature of persons connected with the stage, but unknown to fame. When Miss Lay entered, Reggie, dressed in a suit of somewhat pronounced pattern, with a humber, tweed hat on his head, was reading the era, while his wife stood in front of the glass doing her hair. Notwithstanding the late hour, she still wore a dressing-gown of red satin, covered with inexpensive lace, which was certainly neither very new nor very clean. Miss Lay's appearance caused some embarrassment, and it was not without awkwardness that Reggie made the necessary introduction. "'Excuse me being in such a state,' said Mrs. Reggie, gathering up her hairpins. "'But I was just going to dress.' She was a little woman, plainly older than her husband, and to Miss Lay's astonishment, by no means pretty. Her eyes were handsome, used with full knowledge of their power, and her black hair very fine, but chiefly noticeable was a singular determination of manner, a shrewishness about the mouth, which suggested that if she did not get her own way, someone would suffer. She looked rather suspiciously at Miss Lay, but treated her with sufficient cordiality to indicate a readiness to be friendly if the visitor did not prove hostile. "'I only heard you were married yesterday,' Miss Lay hastened to say, as affably as possible, "'and I was anxious to make your wife's acquaintance, Reggie. "'You've not come from the mater?' he asked. "'No. I suppose she's in a hell of a wax.' "'Reggie, don't swear. I don't like it,' said his wife. Miss Lay shrugged her shoulders and smiled vaguely. Since she was not offered a chair, she looked round for the most comfortable and sat down. Mrs. Reggie glanced uncertainly from her husband to Miss Lay, and then at her own disarranged dress, 
hesitating whether to leave the pair alone or to sacrifice her appearance. I am untidy, she said. Good heavens, it's so refreshing to find someone who doesn't dress till late in the day. When I take off my dressing gown, I put on invariably a sense of responsibility. Do sit down and tell me all about your plans. Miss Lay had the art of putting people at their ease, and the bride succumbed at once to the elder woman's quiet but authoritative way. She glanced at her husband. "'Reggie, take off your hat,' she said peremptorily. "'Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot.' When he removed his headgear, Miss Lay noticed that his hair was very long, worn with dramatic flamboyance. His speech was deliberate, with a certain declamatory enunciation which vastly amused his old friend. His nails were none too clean, and his boots needed polish.' "'What does the mater think of my going on stage?' he asked, passing his hand with a fine gesture through his raven locks. "'It's the best thing I could do, isn't it, Loria?' "'I feel that I've found my vocation. Nature intended me for an actor. It's the only thing I'm fit for, an artistic career. Tell my mother that I will sacrifice everything to my art. I hope you'll come and see me play.' It will give me great pleasure. Not in this piece. I only walk on, don't you know? But in the spring, Loria and I are going to give a series of recitations. He rose to his feet and, standing in front of the fireplace, stretched out one dramatic hand. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows, of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them he bellowed the words at the top of his voice uttering each syllable with profound and dramatic emphasis by jove he said what a part they don't write parts like that now an actor has no chance in a modern play where there's not a speech more than two lines long Miss Lay looked at him with astonishment, for it had never occurred to her that such a development could possibly be his. Then, glancing quickly at Loria, she fancied that a slight ironical smile trembled on her lips. "'I tell you,' said Reggie, beating his chest, "'I feel that I shall be a great actor. "'If I can only get my chance, I shall just stagger creation. "'I must go and see Basil Kent and ask him to write a play for us, Loria. "'And are you going to stagger creation, too?' asked Miss Lay, blandly turning to Mrs. Reggie. The young woman restrained her merriment no longer, but burst into such a hearty peal of laughter that Miss Lay began to like her. "'Will you stay to tea, Miss Lay?' "'Certainly. That's why I came.' That's fine. I'll make you some tea in less than no time. Reggie, take the can and go out and get a half a pint of milk. Yes, my dear, he replied obediently, putting on his tweed hat with a rakish swagger and taking from a table littered with papers, articles of apparel, and domestic utensils, a small milk can. How much money have you got in your pocket? He pulled out some coppers and one silver coin. One and seven pence halfpenny. 
Then you'll have one and sixpence halfpenny when you come home. You can buy a packet of straighters for threepence and mind your back in ten minutes. Yes, dear. He walked out meekly and closed the door behind him. Mrs. Reggie went to the door and looked out. His mother brought him up very badly, she explained. He's not above listening at keyholes. Miss Lay, shaking with inward laughter, had listened to the scene with amazement. Lariah continued her apologetic explanations. You know, I have to keep a sharp eye on his money because he's rather inclined to tipple. I've got him out of it, but I'm always afraid he'll drop into a pub if I don't look out. His mother must be about the biggest fool you've met, isn't she? Mrs. Reggie glanced at a box of cigarettes, and then the other, noticing the yellow on her forefinger, concluded she was an eager smoker. It was easy to put her in comfort. Would you give me a cigarette? Oh, do you smoke? cried Loria, with a bright look of pleasure. I was simply dying for a fag, but I didn't want to shock you. They lit up, and Miss Lay drew towards her another chair. Do you mind if I put my feet up? I always think that only quadrupeds should keep their longer extremities constantly dangling. With a faint smile, she essayed to make smoke rings. You're all right, said Loria with a little nod. I'm glad you came. I wanted to have a talk with someone who knew Reggie's mother. I suppose she's in a fury. I wanted him to tell her beforehand, but he didn't dare. Besides, he never does a thing straightforwardly if he can do it crooked. And as for lying, well, he's worse than a woman. You can tell his mother it'll take me all my time to make a gentleman of her son. Miss Lay smiled dryly. I have seldom seen a newly married woman so keenly alive to the defects of her husband's character. Reggie's not a bad boy, really, answered his wife, shrugging her shoulders. But he wants licking into shape. I wonder why you married him, asked the other, reflectively, knocking off the ash of her cigarette. Loria looked at her sharply, hesitating, then made up her mind to speak openly. You seem a good sort and a woman of the world, and after all, I'm married, and you'll just have to make the best of me. Reggie's good-looking, isn't he? She glanced at a photograph which stood on the chimney-piece, and I like him. You know, I've been on the stage eight years. I went on when I was sixteen. How much does that make me? Twenty-seven, I should say, answered Miss Lay with deliberation. Loria smiled good-naturedly. Nasty people say I'm twenty-eight, but anyhow, I'm sick to death of the stage, and I want to get off it. I thought you were going to play Juliet to Reggie's Romeo. Yes, I can see myself. For one thing, I'm quite sure Reggie can't act for nuts. And when they start, they all want to play Hamlet. Why, I never knew a super who carried a banner in a panto who didn't think that if he got his opportunity, he'd be another Irving. Oh, I heard it so often. Every girl I know has come to me and said, Lariah, I feel I've got it in me, and I only want a chance. I'm sick of the whole thing. I don't want to go traipsing about the provinces, working like a nigger all week, and traveling on Sundays, living in dingy apartments and all the rest of it.
I just let Reggie gas away, and it keeps him out of mischief to learn plays. I thought it would take his mother three months to come around, and by that time he'll be sick of it. I like Reggie, and when I've had him in hand for a few months, I shall make a decent boy of him, but I don't pretend for a moment I'd have married him if I hadn't known that his mother had money. You're a wise woman. In the first place, I can't think how you got him to marry at all. I never thought he'd do it. My dear Miss Lay, I thought you were a woman of the world. Don't you know that if a girl of my age makes up her mind to marry a man, he must be awfully cute to save himself? I confess I had often suspected it, smiled Miss Lay. Of course, you have to choose your man. I saw Reggie was gone on me, and I let him a dance. You know, we've got a reputation for being wrongins on the stage, but that's all rot. We're no worse than anyone else, only we've got more temptation. And when anything happens, the papers will take it up just because we're professional. But I've known how to take care of myself, and I just let Master Reggie understand that I wasn't going to be made a fool of. I played up to him for a fortnight and then told him I wouldn't see him any more. By that time, he was fairly stage-struck, and so he asked me to marry him. It sounds very simple. How did you manage to tame him? I just let him see that if he wanted to have a decent time, he's got to be nice to me, and he very soon tumbled to it. You wouldn't think it, but I've got a nasty temper when I'm roused. He looks up to me like anything, and he knows I don't mean to stand any nonsense. Oh, he'll be all right in six months. And what do you want me to tell his mother? Just tell her not to interfere. We're all right with regard to money, and when she calms down, she can make us an allowance. Six hundred a year will do, and we'll take a house at Burnemouth. I don't want to live in London till I'm sure of Reggie. Very well, answered Miss Lay. I'll say that, and I'll say besides that, she ought to thank her stars. Reggie has found a decent woman. I have no doubt in a little while you'll make him into quite a remarkable member of society. Here he comes with the milk. Reggie entered, and together they began to make tea. When Miss Lay departed, Loria sent him downstairs to show her out. Ain't she a ripper? he exclaimed. And I tell you what, Miss Lay, she's a real good sort. Tell the mayor that she's not beneath me at all. Beneath you, my dear boy, she's worth six of you. And I dare say, under her charge, you'll turn into a very passable imitation of a gentleman after all. Reggie looked at her with tragic countenance, flung back his head, and pressed both his hands to his manly bosom. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, he cried. For goodness sake, hold your tongue, she interrupted quickly. She gave him her hand, and while pressing it, he leaned forward confidentially and exclaimed, I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. End of chapter 11